Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to put in another plug for uh, giving the gift of sanity this holiday season. We've got a big 40% discount if you want to give somebody uh, a uh, subscription to the 10% Happier app. Uh, just a quick note about the app. We've got five more than 500 guided meditations on all sorts of topics from anxiety to parenting to productivity and focus. We've got all these sleep, a whole section dedicated to sleep. We've got a whole section dedicated to these mini Sort of, I call them like wisdom bombs, these little five to seven minute long um, talks from some of the best teachers in the world. We're releasing new content all the time. We've got these great courses that go up that use a mixture of video and audio. This has become one of uh, the main areas of focus for me in my life, this company. So I uh, would love you guys to check it out and, uh, and or give it as a gift. Uh, so you can, uh, if you want to do it as a gift, you can go to... 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash gift. 10% one word all spelled out dot com slash gift, G-I-F-T. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. And again, we've got a 40% discount going right now. Okay, let's do the episode this week. I was uh, really blown away by the raw intelligence of our guest this week, Nikki Mirgafori. She's uh, she's got a uh, a PhD in computer science. Uh, computer science. She's an expert in artificial intelligence. Uh, she's also a highly accomplished Buddhist teacher. She teaches um, at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and at Insight Meditation Society at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, which is right in the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh, she teaches all over the world. In fact. Uh, and she holds uh, multiple patents and has co-authored more than 40 scientific research articles. So she just achieved excellence in two really tricky fields. Uh, and in this episode, we talk about we talk about her life story, which is very interesting. And um, we talk about her practice history, where she did a deep dive into a, a kind of practice known as the jhanas which is, well, she'll describe it better than I do, but it's a fascinating, somewhat magical, somewhat controversial area of practice uh, where very interesting things can happen in the mind. And then we talk a lot about a big focus for her in her teaching is about death, which, as we've discussed on the show before, can sound supremely morbid, but um, her argument is that it actually adds an enormous amount of uh, vividness and um, electricity to our actual lives to take in our own finitude. So here we go. Here's Nikki Mirgafori. Great to meet you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Lovely to meet you also. So I would love to, uh, just to start with your backstory. How did you get interested in meditation? I love that that question. It's the origin story of how we got in. So um, how did I get into meditation? So so I'll answer that actually a little differently. That um, I answer in terms of how did I get into this tradition, Theravada tradition and mindfulness practice? Because meditation, there's so many different types of meditation. And I used to do um, 
uh, Herbert Benson's relaxation response meditations, uh, breathing meditation, breathing techniques. And, you know, he had a book on that a long time ago and also guided visualizations a long, long time ago. Um, so, but I didn't so consider that meditation. It was just kind of a practice. But the way I got into this uh, tradition, the Theravada tradition, mindfulness, um, I'll tell you that story because Great. I think that's kind of more relevant to where we are today and, and, and all my practice that really um, uh, happened after that. So 2002, 2003, I had finished my uh, dissertation at Berkeley. Uh, I graduated, got my PhD in computer science, and I was working at um, at a startup in Silicon Valley. And I was camping and hiking and was really outdoors person. And then I got really sick. I got really, really sick for about a year. And doctors couldn't quite figure out what was going on with me. Um, I was really tired. I was quite exhausted. They thought it was mono. That that level of fatigue was, was showing up. And really couldn't be diagnosed. So by the end of that year, and I continued to work uh, full-time. I don't know how, but anyway, I continued to work. And towards the end of that period, I was quite desperate to try anything. And a dear friend of mine, who also worked at Nuance, at, at this company with me. Nuance? Uh, yeah, I used to work at Nuance Communications when it was a startup, uh, speech recognition company, which is my expertise. So this friend, this dear friend, um, had done a couple of meditation retreats. And so she told me about the value of meditation. And um, she took me to um, Inside Meditation Center in Redwood City for a couple of nights uh, to just kind of get the basics and hear a Dharma talk. And now I teach at IMC, by the way, a footnote. So she took me there and then she took me a day long to Spirit Rock. So I learned the basics of meditation. And then within a few weeks, months, I did my first 10-day silent uh, meditation retreat at Joshua Tree with Jack being my first, Jack Hornfield being my first interview teacher, practice meeting teacher. And the 10-day retreat was just profound. It it blew my mind. It um, opened my mind to a world I did not know exist. And as a scientist, I was fascinated. It seemed like the mind could see in its own workings from the inside. It was, it was fascinating. It was amazing, and and I was hooked. Hmm. So that's how I started in this practice. And and years ago, by the way, it, um, it turns out that that the illness that I had about ten years after actually uh, I f- first got sick, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, hmm. um, and it's it's been the biggest teacher. Um, for me on my path. In fact, years ago, when I was really sick, I remember writing a thank you letter to the tick that bit me. Because if it wasn't for that tick, for it, I wouldn't be here. Uh, it's It completely changed the course of my life for the better, I would say. And, and I, I don't want to, to underscore or whitewash all the pain and and challenges and suffering and physical pain and emotional pain and all the changes, all the challenges that really this illness has had. Um, I could write a book about it. And I've grown in ways I never,
never thought possible because it has pushed me to places I didn't want to be pushed. And that's how we grow, how we grow in compassion, how we grow in, in wisdom. It's through challenges we, we don't want, but if we embrace them, they, they can change us. So, so I'm grateful to the tech um, in a very strange way. Not that I wish it on anybody ever, um, but it has changed my life. So that's, that's my origin story. Did you, once you got interested in meditation, did you, you have this background? I, mean, I was, I was saying before we began recording that I was reading your bio and just, I, I wrote the words down. I'm blown away by this bio. This is just the, the, the incredible vastness of your areas of expertise. So you mentioned before that you were, you were working in AI, artificial intelligence, voice recognition. So people like you for that we can thank for Siri and Alexa and Hey Google. Uh, are you, did you continue doing that work even as you dove into the world of meditation and ultimately becoming a teacher? Yeah. So I did continue that work in pretty intensely actually for many years after Nuance. I, um, I, I left and I went back to Berkeley and I was a research scientist at the International Computer Science uh, Institute at Berkeley, where I was doing research. I was um, publishing papers, being the principal investigator, leading, you know, advising graduate students, PhDs, postdocs. So I was, I was really in that world for a long time. I was doing meditation retreats here and there, you know, scheduling them when I could, practicing, but it, my life was still as a scientist, as as um, as an academic, as as a full time nerd. Um, so, so around, I would say 2006 is when I think what happened was for me, again, for, for each person is different, but for me, I, I had the existential angst ever since I was a teenager, I was a kid and, and I grew up in Iran. I remember reading the poetry of Hafez and Rumi in Farsi when I was a teenager and, and not quite understanding them, but under, but getting that there is more to life than being a gerbil on a wheel. And I would study phil- philosophy, actually, one of my minors as an undergrad was philosophy and, and psychology. So I had this existential angst and curiosity about the world and what is this all about? Why are we here? Why are we doing this thing anyway? What's the point? So while I was a full-time nerd at Berkeley doing this research thing and establishing myself in my field which had been my goal, the existential angst or inquiry and curiosity became more and more alive. And a time came that I felt like I had established myself in my field the day the way I had wanted to. I was in the quote unquote in crowd of, you know, the conferences and I had students and, and plenty of grant money and I was well known in my field. You know, I had established myself. Like, okay, I've made it. Okay, now what? All right, I can continue to do this more and more, more publishing, more students, more conferences, more. And and it it was great not to say there was anything wrong with it. It was intellectually really, really satisfying. And it was also really, really fun to to mentor and support other students, graduate students and postdocs. But then the question came up, okay, now what? So what? Okay, what's the point of all this? So um, at that point, I decided to take a leave of absence um, and um, dedicate myself 
to meditation and contemplation for an entire year. So I took a leave of absence and basically with all the funders and, and all the projects I had, managed them in a way so that, um, you know, I could, I could step away. And during, during that time, I did a lot of meditation retreats, a lot of reading, writing, um, both in the Theravada tradition. Also, I was studying in the Chan tradition, the Chinese Zen tradition. And after about a year of that, it seemed like it was just getting juicy. I was just getting into it. I, I wasn't done. So I took one more year um, of the leave of absence and continued this practice. And it was during that time that I, I uh, did a three-month retreat with, with my teacher, Pak Sayada, the, the Burmese meditation master. Let me just say that name, Pao Ak Sayada. Sayada is basically Burmese term for great meditation teacher. Exactly. And Pao Ak is his name. Yes. Mm-hmm. Pak Toya Sayada, to be more exact, because Pak is also the name of his monastery. So Pak Toya uh, Sayada, exactly. And, um, I know him because uh, context in which I've heard of him is through is, and I, this may be too narrow to define the scope of his teaching, but I've heard of him as a jhana teacher. So, uh, yes, and yes, and yes, and so he is considered to be the um, living jhana master, but that is the first part of what he teaches. He teaches jhanas in order to prepare your mind for practicing vipassana. Let me just jump in for yes, a second. Please, because I did a me. thing that I, yeah, yeah, I try yeah. not to do, which is yeah. I used a term without explaining what the term means. Yes, so please. So we've talked about the jhanas before on the show, but if you're not a completist and haven't listened to every episode or if you've listened to the episode but forgotten, it's worth defining what the jhanas yes. are. Yes, I've heard them defined as kind of, well, it's a, it's a kind of meditation that hones our ability to concentrate um, and that once the mind gets really concentrated, this very interesting thing happens, and I'll have to say allegedly because I've not experienced it myself, but it's def- people talk about it, and I'm sure we'll hear you talk about it, with very, with a lot of consistency about these kind of interlocking, a friend of mine used this term before, these kind of interlocking rooms in the mind that you can walk through. So there are these eight levels of jhana practice uh, that you move through the more the mind is concentrated on something like the feeling of your breath going in or going out, metta practice, loving kindness practice, you know, sending uh, these phrases, uh, you know, may be happy, et cetera, et cetera, to various targets in your mind can also get you to the jhanas, as I understand it. Right. Um, as I, what I'm hearing you say is that the Sayada gets the minds of his students very concentrated through the jhana practice and then turns that power on examining the nature of reality to be a little grandiose in insight or vipassana practice yes yes faithful reproduction of yeah that, okay. that, that's close enough pretty good nice okay. job dan yeah nice job yeah so to to also say a little more about that Please. so so basically you know in in this tradition in the theravada tradition concentration practice a samatha practice is a precursor to vipassana practice. So samatha practice translated as often as concentration, but just to say, I really dislike that translation of the word samatha practice because it gives up, it brings about a feeling of of hard work, yes, like yes, furrowed yeah. brow, concentrate, like do your math homework, concentrate now, Dan, will you? Um, 
Whereas actually, a bit the the more appropriate translation of samata is to bring together, to unify, mm-hmm. to collect. So if you think of samatha practice as a way to collect the mind, unify the mind, uh, settle the mind, calm the mind, stabilize the mind. Well, they're also sometimes referred to as tranquility practice. It yes, yes, it, yes, exactly. Um, so so that in order to make the mind malleable, to make it really malleable, so that it can, as you were saying. Penetrate, quote unquote, penetrate the nature of reality to see differently, to see deeply. Vipassana, also translated as to see deeply, to see with insight, to see differently, a different way of seeing. So when the mind is really stable, uh, calm, collected, malleable, it can have insight. It's more prone to seeing things differently, not seeing them the same way, same old, same old. So, so in in the in the Buddhist tradition. Samatha practices, unification practices, I'll avoid the C word, uh, practices are always taught not independently on their own, but always as a precursor to Vipassana, because that is considered to be the liberating practice. And and you probably know this story, but for, for, for those who are listening, um, so it is said that in Buddha's time, he uh, studied the jhanas, these deep absorptions, these practices, these states of mind, when the mind gets very, very stable, calm, it a sense of absorption arises in the object of meditation. And as you were saying, the object can be can be the breath, uh, it can be uh, metta, loving kindness, uh, the, the fe- feelings of goodwill, could be what's called kasinas or other practices. So colors, there's some colors that this practice is done with, or the four elements, fire, wind, or water, and earth. So there are different objects. In fact, the Visuddhimagga, the Path of Purification, which is this 1,000-page manual of practice uh, put together by Buddha Gosa, Bhikkhu Buddha Gosa, I think, 5th century. It's a practice manual. It's a practice manual for all these practices, and they list 40 different Samatha objects for unifying the mind. So in the West, we often just use the breath, often. Um, sometimes when people hear metta, oh, you can actually calm and unify and, and do samatha practice with metta and the other Brahma-viharas, the other uh, four heavenly abodes, uh, loving-kindness, vicarious joy, compassion, and equanimity also. But um, there's so many other objects for unifying the mind. So the forty. So anyway, so uh, so many directions we can go from I, I there. I did a meta retreat uh, about a year ago from the time we're recording this yeah. with uh, Spring Washam, great oh, meditation yeah, 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 yeah. teacher. It was just the two of us actually. It was a real privilege for me to do that. And I I don't know if I hit the I'm pretty sure I didn't hit the uh, the first jhana, but just vibrating with uh, the what's called PT, P-I-T-I, mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm. the sort of pleasant bodily sensations that come from a unified mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So metta has a really powerful unification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Say concentration. <laughs> uh, 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 potential. Okay, caveat, yeah. okay, good. Now that we put the caveat out, I can <laughs> That's right, exactly. Yeah. I will use, I, I do use it. I will use it myself too because that's how it's often translated and 
and people think of it as, as the concentration. But yeah, so so what you're sharing is that having done the meta practice uh, with your mind getting more calm and stable and collected, uh, some of the jhanic factors, what are called the jhanic factors, arose for you. And one of the jhanic factors is piti, as you were saying, this this bubbly joy that can arise or a sense of, it can also show up as rapture, as this energy that can move through your uh, your body and your mind. It can show up in so many different ways. There are five different types of rapture, again, according to Visuddhima. We're going in so many directions. <laughs> You are, as I often say to my guests, in a safe place for, for digressions of all varieties. So don't don't worry about that. Ah, uh, so so let's see where were we? Let's let's. I'm going to try to bring it back a little bit. We had a thread, or I. Um, so yes, the thread was your practice, if I that, recall. I know we got so far. Here we are. Yes, here we are. <laughs> The thread was, so you went to study with Pawak Sayadaw, who yeah, uses exactly. the jhanas and then exactly. combines them with an insight, right? So, so basically, so, so right, yes. So, so the reason why, yeah, and you were saying that you, uh, you've heard of him as being a jhana master. Uh, so, so he teaches both jhanas and, and vipassana, but he is so strict about his definition of the jhanas that most people only manage to study the jhanas with him and, and don't ever get to the vipassana because he's so rigorous. So, so that gets us to the, you know, maybe the controversy or the differences in in, in the jhana uh, definitions uh, in this tradition. Because in there is the uh, jhana light that L I T E jhana light jhana taught, and I think perhaps most famously by Lee Brazington, yeah. mm-hmm. who's been on this show. So yes. I'll put the link to that episode. Yeah. It, yeah. He's an utterly fascinating he human being. He is a great guy. Uh, nice. And person. so I would recommend yeah. if you're interested in the jhanas, I think pairing this discussion we're having mm-hmm. now with the Lee Brazington discussion is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And then there is the sutta jhanas. And then there's the Visuddhi Magajanas. So the Visuddhi Magajanas, they raise the bar so high, and that's what uh, my teacher, Pag Sayada, teaches. Just to be clear, the Sutta Jhana, so you have Jhana Light, which, uh, represented by Lee Brasington. The Sutta Jhanas is, I believe, the way the Buddha talked about it in the texts in known the, as the Suttas. Yes. And then the Visuddhi Magajanas would be the the... The Buddha Gosa version, the sort of yeah. super nerd version that are, yeah. the, you know, you have to have attained a unification, a a level of unification slash concentration right. that is a very high bar to meet. Yes. And am I to take from what you described with your time with Pawak Sayada that that you were able to meet his definition of the jhanas to a point where he said, go do the Vipassana work? Yes. Yes. He taught me the... The four, the f- four jhanas, and then actually the eight jhanas. So all the eight jhanas, um, and then when he was satisfied, when he was really satisfied, then we moved on to 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 practice vipassana. And actually, that's really that was the bulk of my practice with him. Jhanas were just preparatory; they were just warm up exercises, really, as far as he's concerned, for his path. So, how did you not? Now, this is definitely projection. What I'm about to say. But how did you not, if I got through the eight jhanas with Pawak Sayadaw, so in other words, if I was able to get through such a rigorous set of um, expectations, I would have a lot of ego around that. How did you How did you manage that or did it not show up for you? Hmm. I think. 
think what happens is actually the vipassana practice is the part that you get to see both the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the non-self nature of all things. Um, so it's not me, it's not mine. But I guess, I guess what, I w- what I would say is that even before the vipassana part, I don't think it came up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, maybe there's something about the practice. Maybe there was something about the practice itself and, and the way that actually, that's it. Okay, here... I'm reflecting, I'm taking the pause and I'm reflecting as I'm speaking with you to see actually what was my state of mind practicing. And I think part of what actually gets in the way of people or people get in the way of themselves is striving for these absorptions, for these beautiful states of mind which are really healing that can be also addictive. But there's a sense of striving and a sense of identification so if there is striving identification actually gets in the way. And I think in my practice, in the micro and in a macro level, while I was doing them, I realized that neither of those were going to work. And I just had to give myself to it. It wasn't me. It wasn't it wasn't mine. I I didn't know how I was doing it, Dan. I I wasn't doing the practice. It's hard to say, it's hard to verbalize. All I, whoever this I is, was doing, was putting the conditions in place. I was putting the conditions in place, completely giving myself wholeheartedly, lovingly to the practice with curiosity, interest, devotion, um, dedication. And the rest of it, it was really not mine. These trap doors just opened things that I had no idea how to do. It, it was done. It just unfolded. So with that spirit, with that way of doing it, there was no ego to connect to this thing. It's just like, this is, it's it's like, it's grace. It's like a little birdie of grace that sat on my shoulder. Why? Thank you. I don't know. And it could fly away anytime. That's so interesting. And it gets me thinking about something that I've often said about Dharma practice meditation generally, which is, it's like a fascinating yet frustrating video game where you can't move forward if you want to yeah, move forward. That's right. You have to put the car in the clutch into neutral somehow, which is and then it just happens, right? And and and, and that's exhilarating and and you can stop the process yeah. by thinking, "Look, oh my, oh my god, look what I'm doing right now." And then it all just <laughs> right, falls apart. Right, right. And so you just have to learn that over and over again. <laughs> But it's it's really humbling in the truest sense of that term because you you come to see what you just described, which is this – a couple of things. One is this is just ha- – I'm just kind of unleashing forces of nature here, right? I'm not doing this. There is – there's no real me here in this picture, no I here in this picture. And then the other thing is just the, the, the jhanas, which I have not experienced personally, it's just so fascinating to me as uh, just from a – and I'm not a scientist either, you are, but just from a scientific perspective that if you do this practice, this concentration or unification practice, certain things, certain phenomena will arise in the mind reliably and predictably. These eight mm-hmm. flavors of, of concentration, uh, these eight states will unfold apparently uh, reliably and predictably uh, 
that 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 that's something that nature has created in some way is fascinating to me. Um, anyway, I'll stop rhapsodizing. I don't know if you have anything to say based yeah. on what I just said. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really appreciate what you're saying because especially the four jhanas, I would say, especially the first four jhanas, I think there is a way for the mind to find their way into them. And, and of course, uh, especially the jhanic factors, I would say, even more so because the jhanic factors, PT, we talked about one, um, uh, joy, rapture, sukha, which is bliss, sense of bliss throughout the body and mind. Um, and the other two, which actually the first two you one does and the other three arise on their own. So the first two being vitaka and vichara, which is connecting with, with the object and sustaining the attention with the object. So those are the two that we put in place. Vitaka, vichara, connecting, sustaining, connecting, sustaining. Imagine you're rubbing a bowl. So you connect with the bowl, you, you rub the bowl, kind of connect, sustain, connect, sustain. So those are the first two jhanic factors that, that we do. And then the other three, PT, the joy, that the rapture arises on its own. It just comes up. You don't make it happen. It happens on its own. You've experienced it. Yes. Whoa, where did this come from? Um, bliss, a sense of bliss that's more blissful than anything else imaginable uh, in our sensory world. Wow. wow, where did this come from? Who ordered this? Is this possible? Is Am I really still alive in this human body? Yep, this is bliss. Okay, I get familiar with it. Um, and the last one being ikagata, um, which is um, often translated as one-pointedness. Again, not a great translation, but it's the sense that the mind is not movable, is is not moving from the object. Is is like the object as if it were... Um, a magnet, and the mind is just attracted to it. It cannot move, even if it wanted to. There's a sense of such stability. So, so these, especially these, get experienced. Um, they, they they arise, and 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 the jhanas, these states of absorption. It helps to have guidance from a teacher to to support and see when the the jhanic factor is arising how to support them how to how to guide so having a guide is really really helpful and these are various states and various factors that that arise in fact so so i was born in tehran iran and and to a to a liberal muslim family and when I was a teenager, I remember I was reciting the Quran and I was praying, and I was so deep in med- in in my prayer and meditation that there was this this eruption of light and energy, this explosion in my head, in my whole body, and I had no idea what had just happened, uh, and I didn't talk to anyone about it. Years later, when I'm doing samatha practice and and uh, Pity is arising, these explosions of energy and rapture throughout my body. It's like, wow, that's what that was. So they arise, and there's so many mystics in so many different traditions that talk about these uh, Johnny factors, about these states in very different ways, associating different meanings with them. But they are part of this mystery of being human that, that our hearts and minds bodies open up to. With your permission, I'd like to turn the conversation now to something that we talked about beforehand of, of uh, one of the great interests. You're one of, you're one of these people who I, we could do, as I mentioned to you earlier, we could do four different 
podcast right now because you have your interests are so vast and fascinating. But one of the things that you and I talked about before we started recording that might be interesting to dive in on is um, an area where you turned your attention ultimately after this extensive training that we've kind of just touched upon is the the mindfulness of death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine that the tick contributed to that interest, but I don't know. You can tell me. Um, and you've been working on a presentation around uh, mindfulness of death that I would love to dive into with these sort of nine benefits of this practice, which is super counterintuitive for most of us. Uh, the upside of our mortality does not occur to most of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So are you comfortable diving into that now? Or is there sure. something we missed? Uh, it's all good. We can go any direction, okay. any and all directions. So many, so many places we can go. I, we'll, I, we'll come back to Park Sayada, Jhana practice, Vipassana, past lives practice. We'll, we'll do we'll, past lives practice. No right, now we got to do that. <laughs> uh, okay, that, now I want to hear about that. <laughs> let's let's stay with the current life for a second. <laughs> let's do that. That sounds good. That sounds great. Um, okay, so so you're you've been working on. A presentation around yeah. uh, 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 mindfulness of death. Mm-hmm. As I said before, a lot of people mm-hmm. don't want to think about death. We've yeah. talked about it a lot mm-hmm. on this show, mm-hmm. and you have d- developed this list of nine sort of benefits of doing so. Can we can we start going sure. through those nine? Sure, sure. Oh, well, but first, though, let, yeah. was I right that the tick uh, contributed to, into your interest in this issue, or, or was there something else? Not exactly, okay, actually. Was it was it wasn't 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 the tick? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't jump in. <laughs> um, no, there have been many other interests. I think many other sources for this interest. I don't know. It's. I think part of it is so. 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 I think the bigger picture is, as I said, that the existential curiosity, interest about life and death. So that that's the. I think that's the the framework, and then um, perhaps there have been life life experiences that have led to this. I'll, I'll share I'll share one with you. One was um, so I mentioned that I grew up in Tehran, um, and uh, when I was a teenager, still in Tehran, it was during the the Iran Iraq War, and there was a period where actually. Um, the Iraqi bombers were coming to Tehran, and and there would be sirens, and we would get. Uh, you know, I remember uh, the sense of fear of running down the stairs and getting into the basement of the house, and there was a, quite a sense of fear, not knowing where the bombs would be dropped. So, and I remember once actually, I think it was about twelve or maybe thirteen, quite young, that you know the sirens went off and we uh, got into the basements. It got a bit basement, and um, we could hear. I could hear. I could hear the sound of the the bombs, um, not just the artillery that was also quite loud and deafening, but but the sound of the bombs that were hitting. It sounded like close by, and it sounded as if the bombs were getting closer and closer and closer, as the glass windows shook harder and harder. And in my teenage mind, the sense was, huh, I think this is it. I think this is the end of my life. I'm going to die now. Um, so I held my breath. I think I was hugging my mom and, and held her and, and held my breath and, and said goodbye to the world, 
thank you. It's been nice. It's been great. Okay, here I go. Held my breath, said goodbye, and I didn't die. And the lights came on, and I came back upstairs home uh, to our flat or apartment, and and um, there was a sense of how precious life was, how precious, precious life was. Um, all colors were deeper. The tastes were sweeter, more intense. Seeing people I loved and cared for was just everything seemed so precious. Such a gift to 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 be alive, not to take it for granted. There was a sense of, wow, I'm alive. This is amazing. This is so amazing. So it completely changed my perspective. And, and being a teenager, 12, 13, it was, it was quite... I would say a turning point in, in, in some ways. So there have been many other experiences for me, many other influences, um, having lost people that I love um, throughout my life, my 20s, 30s, um, and 40s, and in a way contemplating their death, being mindfulness of, of death of people who have been so close to me, so dear to me. So that has been another way that it has come into my life. And I had one other experience of almost dying in the Strait of Magellan um, on a little boat. But uh, yeah, so there have been plenty of influences, plenty of reasons where this has become an interest of mine. And to say, I guess, I guess another another um, layer of interest is there was a time during that two year period of contemplative. Um, uh, leave of absence that I mentioned earlier from Berkeley. And during that time, um, during the first year of it, actually, my practice was going into very nihilistic spaces. Uh, the the practice of the realizations of anatta, not self, were kind of going off the rails into nihilism. Like, what is this all about? Instead of being grounded in the middle way, so, so in this dark space that I was in, this dark space of dark night of the soul, I remember practicing, trying to figure out how to how to work with this. This is not an uncommon stage yeah. in, in the practice, yeah. Where you yeah. just, yeah, I think sometimes referred to as disgust. It different, yeah, different. It's it's so yes. Yeah, so there there is the dukkhanianas, um, the the knowledges, the the the. Um, challenging knowledges where disgust and and fear and and um they arise when um when the mind opens up to the the, the challenge to the gets to see reality in a different way i'm not quite sure if that is exactly what was happening to me at that point it's it's kind of unclear it's but yes, what you but it is it is common in the practice for these challenging state states of mind to arise, which are actually not depression, uh, but you know because life is perfectly fine, there's nothing different. But it's just there's something about nature of reality that that is is hard to witness. So dukkhanianas, these these um, states of of challenging states during practice. So yes, fear and disgust. Um, are, are one of them. 
So, so when I was in this state at that point, I sat with a teacher. I sat a retreat with a teacher, and and their recommendation at that point was, which is really funny, uh, their recommendation was to do uh, mindfulness of death practice in that in that period that I was. Uh, in that nihilistic period, I would say. So a little different perhaps from the the fear and disgust states, uh, but it was a nihilistic. It was basically really in that, at that time, it was the anatta going off the rails. It wasn't so much the fear and disgust and dukkanianas for see. me at that point. So that, anatta meaning you would see that there's no substance of this uh, this concept of I here that that we build our lives around. Yes, but again, for me, at that point, it was going to nihilism, not right. in a very but constructive what's way. Of all what's the point of all this? Yeah. Exactly. So it was not exactly constructive. Because the, the Buddha's main proposition was once you see through the illusion of the self that all these, you know, you can stop building up and defending your ego, uh, compassion emerges uh, uncontrived, um, lots of positive things happen when right. we stop clinging to the self-concept but there's a there is a trap door, not a good one, uh, which is nihilism, which is a pitfall of the path, which is, oh well, if I don't exist, what's the point of any of this? Exactly. So I think it was too early in my practice. I didn't have the basics already. It was before I had sat with Pog Sayadaw, and I, see, you know, I was kind of an early meditator. I think at that point, still in in some relative ways, but somehow these insights had come up come up for me, and they had destabilized. Um, um, which which happens for some other people too, and then later when these insights actually came up for me, when my practice was a lot more stable and a lot more rich and grounded, they were actually really liberating to actually see that there is um, there is not a self and that everything is impermanent. It's, so in a very different way. Um, so, but but going back to that, so this 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 teacher suggested that I do mindfulness of death in order to to get out of this nihilistic period, which seemed like fighting fire with fire. I still can't quite understand. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to anyone today, but somehow they recommended that, and I did it, and it worked in a very strange way. So so mindfulness of death became a primary practice for me for a while, um, that this could be my last breath. This could I could I could die any moment. That's one of the practices that the Buddha teaches. This could be my last breath. So so as you're doing um, uh, every, every every bite, this could be my last bite. This could be my last step to really really bring the um, the impermanence of your life uh, to your mind's eye. Just to put a fine point on what you're saying, that these. These are med- this is a meditation practice yes. that one can do in the context of a retreat where sure, every bite at every meal is, as you were saying, this could be my last bite. Every breath as you're feeling it, you're contemplating. There's, there's an element here of using discursive thought that we don't often use in meditation mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Uh, this could be my last breath, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, so in a way, seeing um, to, to superimpose a particular way of seeing on a phenomena that's arising that oh this could this might be my last in breath right here right now i could i could die this could be my last out breath right here wow so really trying to drive home um the reality the feeling because we we don't 
you know, we know we're going to die. We know it up here in our heads, but we don't really, really know. We don't really feel it. We don't, we often, many of us don't live our lives uh, according to that truth. And there's plenty of research that supports that. So, and it turns out that actually being mindful of our limited time in this body, in, in this form, is is really beneficial the same way that other mindfulness practices are beneficial you know there's you know sati mindfulness there's kayagatasati mindfulness of the body as a practice you know there is chittanupasati there is mindfulness of the mind utajaniya teaches that way a lot there are different mindfulnesses and there's maranasati maranasati marana mara the lord of death maranasati mindfulness of death so maranasati has become something that i practiced a lot during that time and i've continued to practice um both as a formal practice on the cushion and also as an informal practice waking up in the morning like ah this could be the day that i die what if this was the day that i die um, when I get in the car, oh, I could have an accident. I could die right now. And, and for me, it's not morbid. It's just a way to like, oh, yeah, this is precious. This life is short. It's precious. It's it's um, it's not infinite. It's not an infinite resource that I can just waste my time. It's There's so many benefits. And, and also now I've, I've been teaching, actually, a seven-day um, Maranasati uh, mindfulness of death retreat at Spirit Rock for the past few years, uh, which has been, I would say, the most profound, the most profound of the retreats that I teach. It's, it's powerful, really powerful. Um, I remember last year, a gentleman um, was a doctor, and and during the 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 retreat, having challenges true in, 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 in facing death and just a lot a lot was coming up for him and, and at the end of the retreat he stopped me and, and, and said, you know, how do you put how do you put a value um on coming in with a mortal fear of death and leaving with peace? So if if just one person is moved to to have more peace about their death and mortality and in the ways that will both affect them and affect people around them and the way they live their life. My work is done. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. 
They're a mutual company, customer owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Let's talk about the the benefits yeah. here. Have we before we actually before we dive in? Have we made clear enough how one can practice this? So you just you just described this idea of this could be my last. Are there other uh, um, mindfulness of death practices that we should know just as a as a foundational sort of table stakes here? Yeah, yeah. So so I would say the best and the primary practice is that this could be my last breath, and doing that consistently. And let me just say a couple more things about it because it's really worth saying a couple more things. And that is doing it, actually taking it on as a formal practice. What tends to happen is um, at first maybe like, oh, yeah, this is going to be, well, actually, no, it's not really my last breath. No, no, you kind of like the mind, the ego is like, no, not really. This is not my last breath. Come on. And you kind of keep at it. And part of what's actually is happening has been termed um, by psychologists as Get this, terror management theory. <laughs> I like that, actually. It's pretty cool, isn't it? So so there's this theory that um, the ego cannot fathom, cannot contemplate its own demise, its own death. And it is so painful. It is so um, challenging, say the psychologists in TMT, terror management theory, theory that... Um, or ego comes up with so many different ways to push it away out of consciousness. Just no, it's not going to happen. No, no, no. I'm so it, it's just really hard to do. So, uh, and and also we engage in, in also lots of different activities. We check out. We go shopping. We drink alcohol, and you know many people do n- not very. Um, productive or supportive practice, things in their lives in order to kind of forget about about this this that their mortality so 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 as as one is doing this practice um term management theory you know it's like oh no it's not really happening no oh no, no. so so hanging in there hanging in there and finding ways at some point maybe imagining that you know this is what i do usually on on retreats like okay imagine a um asteroid is about to hit earth and it can happen you know um it's it's about to happen now this is your last breath okay say goodbye um in a way actually as i talk with you i realize kind of conjuring up the image i had when i was 12 or 13 because i felt like the bomb was hitting and that was it say goodbye this is it this thing this next one we don't necessarily recommend doing it continuously but sometimes people can hold their breath a little bit if it's not really the registering that this could be their last breath. So finding different ways, uh, discursive ways to, to really connect with the reality that this could be your last breath. And if it's not your last breath, it's pretty similar to what your last breath might be anyway. And then what tends to happen is if it really gets going, a sense of terror actually comes up. Ah, I'm going to die. Wow. Wow. Uh, that you, the sense of one's mortality really registers when this practice really gets juicy, gets going. And 
then at that point to ground, to titrate, to really stabilize and just really make peace and comfort, be comforted, with, make peace with, with, with dying. Like, yeah, I am going to die. Yes, it's, it's okay. And then there will be a sense of peace and then deeper layers. So more and more layers. So now when I do this practice, it's like, oh, yeah, I've done this for so long. I'm completely you know, comfortable with, with dying. And yet there are times that still it goes deeper to a level of, wow, there is this, this um, primal not wanting to, to die. So, so dealing, so getting to those layers. So what would it be like if somebody it? barged in the room right now with an AK-47 for you? Yeah. You know, AK-47 is, is a scary thing in, in general. So, but I'm actually curious. I mean, so, so I would try to, to protect myself. So, so, so here's the thing. I'm so glad actually you bring that up because working with, with fear of, uh, with um, both fear of death and mindfulness of death doesn't mean that you don't want to live. Um, that I would want to live. I would do everything I can to protect myself, to protect you uh, from, from the bullets because I want to continue to live. This is pretty awesome. And yet, if I am going to die, if I get hit, like, huh, I'm curious, what's it going to be like? This mysterious experience that I have witnessed um, many of my loved ones go through and everybody succeeds. Nobody fails at dying. We all know how to do it. Um, I'd be curious. But yeah, that's a really, really interesting point that you're raising. And I think that came up for me actually in obliquely, as I mentioned, the Strait of Magellan story, where I was in a boat and and really, it was really, really bad weather. This little zodiac was taking on water and was practicing. I was practicing. I was calm. I was really calm. Like, you know, this could be it. Okay. I'm going to just, if I get into the water, I'll have four minutes before hyperthermia sets in. I'm just going to relax. And there was something deep within me, like, actually... I'm going to try to keep myself warm. I'm not afraid of dying. There's no fear, but there is this desire. There's this deep wish to to live. So mindfulness of death doesn't mean, and it shouldn't mean that you you uh, want to die. Does that make sense? There's there's a makes sense to me. It's not it's not suicidal. It's yeah. It's about seeing the how as you used before, precious it is. Yeah. To be it should it should have the opposite effect yeah. of suicidality. It, it, it should make everything more vivid. Yeah, yeah. So, shall we talk about the the benefits? Yeah. Finally, we've been setting yeah. it up. Oh, actually, wait. Yes. So, so I still didn't answer your previous question completely. You asked about a few practices. Yeah. And and this could be my last breath. I said a little more about that to fill it out yes. with holding the breath, etc. Couple of other ones. One is one important one that I really should mention um, is um, it, it's challenging to mention, but I'll mention it anyway. Is um, corpse contemplation, which is actually a or charnel ground contemplation, which is a big part of Buddhist practice. So, and it's part of actually interestingly enough, it's in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness sutta, which is most of the the uh, the secular mindfulness teachings have been drawn from this teaching of the Buddha. Which is defined so that yeah. the this is the suttas or sutras, depending on which lang- language you want to use, uh, Pali or Sanskrit, 
are the alleged to be the words of the Buddha. Alleged because he said this stuff 2,600 years ago, allegedly, and then it wasn't written down. It was kept orally and passed down uh, that way, and then it was finally written down. And so there's some dispute uh, Mm -hmm. or some suspicion that one could bring to this whole endeavor. Anyway, uh, Satipatthana Sutta is one of the suttas in which he laid out the four foundations, the four ways of developing mindfulness, and this idea of contemplating corpses where – in back in those days, you could find a corpse. It wasn't that hard. These They would lay them out in char, so-called charnel grounds, and you could sit there and eyes open, meditate on the decomposition of a body. Mm-hmm. Harder to do now. It is much harder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. I, my job, though, uh, yeah. I see quite a bit of death. Uh, mm. I'm a news reporter, and so mm. I see, you know, I've seen a lot. Mm. Uh, and uh, over time, uh, initially, I didn't really take it in. I... Um, but over time, as I've become more of a practitioner, now I will use those opportunities mm. or even just skulls or bones yeah. to really – or even an animal that's been uh, killed on the side of a road. Mm. I really will try to turn toward it a little bit more just as because it's a healthy reminder. I think yeah. truly healthy reminder of my finitude, yeah. which is undeniable. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Beautiful. I appreciate hearing how actually you don't turn away. You use these opportunities that arise in your work, in your life, in order to to become closer to to life being limited, this body being nature. This body will die. This body will go back into nature. It is of nature to die. Um, and what we actually do on the, the retreat, Marnasati retreat at Spirit Rock, is we have a um, PowerPoint of images of corpses at different stages of disintegration, which is the contemplation that is in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the first foundation, the first establishment. It's actually laid out, uh, contemplate a body in this stage, and then in this stage, and then in this stage, and all the way to bones scattered here and there everywhere. Um, so contemplating and, and the reason for that is really not to arise, um, more, it's not morbid. It's not disgusting. It's, it's just that this body is nature. This it's, it's no different than any, any else, any other natural uh, trees, they die. Um, they, they go back into earth. So it's actually developing in order to develop a very healthy relationship with the body and what this body is. And, and the humility, we, we, we have such a sense of ownership about our bodies and also all kinds of um, potentially destructive relationships to it. But so, so contemplating corpses, that's another, another practice that I would, I would recommend if, if somebody's up for it. Um, another one is the five daily reflections to do in the morning. Um, and the five daily reflections, they go, um, I am subject to... Uh, aging, I have not. I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I'm subject to the effects of my own actions, and I'm not free of their effects. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. And the last one, that everything that I love and is dear to me will become separated of me, separated from me. So these five contemplations, two of which have to do with death. Just reminding ourselves every every day, every morning, that I am of nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying, and that everything that we 
figure we dis- we we feel it's ours it's not really ours it's we're just passing through this world we're just using everything for a while we're travelers i love this this song by dido my life is for rent our lives our lives are for rent we're renting this body I mean, that's another way to see it we're renting these shoes, these, it's just everything that I'm wearing right now, my watch, I'm just wearing it for a while. I'm, I'm not owning it. I'm a traveler. So nothing that you really own or you love uh, is truly yours. They'll be separated of you. So these are some practices and, and making up our own practices as you were, as you were saying, the news reports or whatever else the, the, that, that comes up during the day. I mean, I'll give you another example. I uh, have a four-year-old we're taping this in San Francisco, this episode, um, and uh, my wife and son came with me for this trip, and I was in the pool with him this morning, and, you know, having a four-year-old is great, but it's also incredibly boring, if I'm going to be honest with you, and sitting in the pool, I'm a little cold, we're doing the same thing over and over again, it's boring, um, and that, I think any parent will understand that that kicks in quite a bit of like, oh my God, are we going to really do this again? Um and yet also, uh, you know, I'm aware that my father is in ill health and, mm. you know, he probably had moments like this with me too. Mm. And I looked up to my dad. He was so, he was, used to run the marathon. Mm. He was so vital. And uh, and I'm just at a similar phase with this kid and what that, that I was in with my dad when mm. he was younger and healthier. Um, and just keeping that in mind mm. can revivify the whole situation. Mm. Uh, and get me out of the what's coming next mode mm. for a few nanoseconds. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it's not permanent, mm. but mm-hmm. you can re up it. Mm, exactly, it's all you need. Just that that reminder. Yes, being aware of it. Yes. Beautiful. So I think that's probably stepping ahead on some of the nine points that you're going to make. Let's let's get there. Okay. We keep talking about it. <laughs> the edge of your seats yet? Okay, here we go. So I guess the first one really is that. Um, Mindfulness of death has an amazing way of aligning our life with our values. Mm. Um, and um, a couple of research studies I want to actually report uh, here, refer to here. One is um, there was a study done in 2004 by um, the Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, where um, they surveyed a group of women and compared how much uh, satisfaction they got from their uh, daily activities, and these are the voluntary activities. Um, so, so, and you would guess, right? What would you guess? You would guess that what you choose to do would align with the level of satisfaction you get out of them, mm-hmm. right? That yeah. would be rational, right? Yes. Right? Voluntary, it's not work. Okay, not so. So it turns out that the women reported that they derived more satisfaction from prayer, worship, and meditation than watching television. But guess what? They spent on average five times longer watching television than engaging in any spiritual activity. So it describes my life. So so actually it turns out it might actually be even worse than that, that the factor of five it might be an underrepresentation. Another survey it's called the the American Time Use Survey from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that on average an American adult spends four, ta- uh, four times longer watching television than socializing and communicating and 20 times longer on TV than religious and spiritual activities. So not five, but 20 yeah. times longer. Yes. So 
Um, that also sounds right. Yeah, is isn't that interesting? So these are voluntary activities that that we do. So, so, so the result, the the the, the solution, however, is not to make a resolution to say, okay, I'm going to stop wasting time. I'm just not going to do that. I mean, we've all made resolutions, and how well did it work, and for how long did it work? So, in a way, resolutions are like carrots, like like sticks. You're like, don't do that. Don't waste time. Don't. Whereas actually what really works is to bring the scarcity and the preciousness of this the scarce resource, which is time to your consciousness, to really, really make it felt that time is short. And guess what does that? Mindfulness. Contemplating death, yes. Exactly. Mindfulness of death. So so if you if you realize that that time is short, um, that is really one way to raise the scarcity of time um, to consciousness, and right, because then you, f- you find yourself your hand reaching for the remote, and maybe some percentage of the time it kicks in. Oh yeah, this is not going to make me as happy as meditation or talking to my children or talking to my spouse may make me. And given that I have limited number of hours on Earth. Maybe I'll make a different decision right now. Maybe. Exactly. What if I die tomorrow? I guess yeah. that would be another thing. Yeah. What if What if I die tomorrow? Is this how I want to spend my last evening on earth? Um, and again, kind of being easy on it. You don't want to make it you know, too, too uh, stressful and kind of get anxiety from, from this mindfulness of death practice. But just keeping keeping death on your shoulder. As um, I think Carlos Castaneda says, keep death on your shoulder as a wise advisor. Keep death on your shoulder as a wise advisor. Does this make sense? I think Sam Harris has a great quote, something about, you know, uh, like watching a bad movie for the fourth time or bickering with your spouse. These things only make sense in light of eternity. So if we had eternity, these things would make sense, right? doing these things, but we don't have eternity and we do things that absolutely do not make sense. So mindfulness of death really raises the, the scarcity of time and, and supports us to, to live aligned with our values, with our deepest values, caring for our relationships, people that we really care about in the world, which could be everyone. So, so another benefit a second benefit I would say is also um, to live without fear of death um, for our own sake. And as I mentioned, um, that, that retreatant who, um, and I've seen many retreatants on retreats and different people I've talked to, and you know, common person doesn't want to talk about death. It's just scary. They don't want to consider their death. There's a sense of anxiety. Actually, when, when we are not afraid of dying, it frees up a lot of psychic energy so that we don't have to engage in these various um, term management theory activities of, of trying to push it aside and trying to numb ourselves um, to, to the pain, to the idea of, of not being here, which, by the way, you know, we're not going to be here to, to see what it's like for us not to be here, right? Yeah, but I, I get that. But, I mean, I, I was just... Uh... Thinking about this, I've done a little bit of mindfulness of death, a little bit, not nearly as much as you, and definitely not a seven-day retreat, which actually I'm now thinking I probably should do, but 
I'm definitely scared of it. Uh, not so much of being dead, because I won't be here to be scared of that. Uh, but the process of dying is a little scary, more than a little scary, depending on how it goes uh, or might go. But also just sad. You know, uh, we're approaching 50, and yeah. it's obvious to me that this show is not going to go on forever. Uh, it's just a kind of a bummer. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I'm not practicing well or enough. But that's the truth of my experience. Yeah, well, it's 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 a different way of of seeing it. I mean, it's the truth of life anyway, right? It's the truth that that we're not going to live forever. But actually, seeing it, seeing the seeing it from the other direction is that um, death gives life meaning, and if we didn't die, the tedium of immortality is something that I had never considered. But there is this idea of tedium. If if you lived forever and had done everything and had seen, had seen uh, everyone, you know, all the care people you cared about come and go, and it's just uh, and and you did everything. There was there would be a sense of tedium of living. In fact, there are these stories, hypothetical stories of of people who are uh, lying in a ditch and just they're not moving at all to do anything. Because they're immortals, they have plenty of time to do anything they want to do. So why should they bother do anything? Right. So it just changes one's perspective uh, about life. It it is, uh, you know, the the time that you have, for example, with with your child, four year old. Isn't he's not going to be four year old no. forever, right? It's precious. You know, it's precious. If he was four years old forever, and you were his dad, you know, this pool scene was like, oh, okay, I could, you know, I can do this later, maybe. Maybe, right? There would not be this preciousness of this scarce scarce resource. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mitigate my fear. In fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the thing with my son only heightens my fear in a bit, in a way. It's just sadness. I don't know if sadness is different right. than fear, but yeah, they right. feel somewhat linked. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so that's another aspect of it. So so another, I would say another benefit actually with the death contemplation is when we feel comfortable with our own death, with, with you know our life being limited, not only is it a gift to us, but another benefit is that it's a gift for the people that we care about, that we love, because they take lessons from us. We are teaching others from the way we are in the world. So I'll, I'll give a personal example. My mom passed away a couple of years ago, and mm. and she was not afraid of dying. She knew she had dementia, and yet I knew she she knew what was going on. It was a type of dementia that she had clarity about what was going on. It was clear she was saying goodbye to friends who were visiting, and there was just a sense of complete peace and ease um, of letting go. And I guess something about my mom is that I had knew all along she wasn't afraid of dying because she had had a um, near-death experience when she was young, before I was born. And um, apparently she had an infection. She had a really, really high fever, and... Um, she says they t- took her to the doctor and, and she heard the doctor say, you've brought me a corpse. She's already dead. And she said she was screaming, I am not dead. Um, I'm, I'm still here. Again, whether you believe, one believes in, in near-death experiences or not, this is what she was reporting for her, in her experience. So I like to hold it all with a don't know mind. But, but um, her, she said that she so wanted to come back to life because she had a young child, my my sister, and they plunge her into cold water for her fever to come down, and she comes back to life. and And since then, she always said, "You know, this is a machine. You know, I'm 
I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of dying. So so coming back to, to this other story, I know that for her, there was no fear of death. There was just a sense of ease. And, and for me, that was the biggest teaching that someone that I loved could give me experientially with a sense of peace and ease. It felt like she was holding my hand through the process. I was holding her hand through the process mm. of supporting her great and calm space for her and and she was holding my hand through it like it's okay it's really okay so teaching our children and people that we love through the work that we do because you know this dan the, the work that we do with mindfulness we don't do the work for ourselves we do it for everyone whose life comes in contact with us when we're calmer when we're happier, when we're more content, when when we're less reactive. It's a gift to the world. When we're more loving, when we're doing metta practice. Similarly, with death contemplation, when we work through our own fear of death and we really make peace with our, with our own mortality, it's a huge gift for people who love us. And also, at that stage, we can be um, more present for other people, for loved ones who are passing at their deathbeds. If, you know, if I hadn't done, I think, all this practice with death contemplation, I don't know how uh, calm or present I would have been with my mom's passing, accepting it completely, loving her, you know, not letting family members force feed her when she didn't want to eat, clearly. It was just respecting her wishes. Let her have a calm, peaceful passing. This is beautiful. This is graceful. Respecting her wishes. So, at uh, the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I'm still scared of this. And I think the answer you would give is practice. Yeah. She's nodding her head. <laughs> Should we keep going through the benefits? Uh, we're, we're going through them kind of in, in, in mixed ways. But okay. I'll, 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 you know, like a couple here. To, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple of other ones. Okay. How's that? Um, I think another one I would say is, um, kind of mentioned maybe a little before, but a sense of uh, gratitude arises mm. um, when death is not feared. It's not considered a mistake. Um, it's not considered an injustice, but it's con- considered to be a natural part of the cycle of being human, this coming and going. Then there's a sense of gratitude for having had the chance to live for this consciousness, for having come together or it's 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 like a book, you know. You're grateful. A book is bound. The characters in the book are bound. Um, and I think is it. Uh, I think Stephen Cave says this, um, a philosopher, that 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 the the characters in the book are are bound by the covers of the book. It doesn't extend. But but you know, as you read the book, it aren't you grateful that the book was written and that everything in its in it exists. It's it's an interesting philosophical argument. I won't go through, you know. I go. I, I won't continue that line too far. But but the sense of, of again, it's if it's not an injustice, if it doesn't feel like a mistake, a universal mistake, but it feels like the way things are. Again, it frees up energies for more more appreciation and gratitude of what is instead of regretting wanting wanting there to be more. It's the same. I guess it's the same idea with with the practice of wanting you know the when you want more of something you don't 
appreciate what you already have because you want that something else. Um, yeah, it describes most of my meals. <laughs> <laughs> you're not tasting the... What are you eating, Dan? <laughs> whatever, you're not tasting the, what you're eating right now because I'm planning my next bite. Yeah. So that's an interesting, interesting thought. So what if we thought, this is it, this is the meal, this is... You know, this bite is it. Maybe if, what if there's no bite after this? Yeah. This is connected to, yes, many of the things that we've discussed. Exactly. Up to this. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And it's another mindfulness and it's another sati practice. Right. Sati being the Pali word for mindfulness. Yeah. Which also may be better translated as awareness, some scholars say, but that's another conversation. We'll leave that for another time, Dan. Um, so another another couple of things. I, I guess we're just also touching into how how um, mindfulness of death also sharpens our lived experience. It can really sharpen um, both both arising appreciation and sharpening the sense of experience, the raw experience, um, similar to the other mindfulness practices that you know mindfulness of the body and and mindfulness of mind. So. So this is another one. The few other advantages or a few other benefits that I would say, one is you know, the the bigger picture of why we do the these practices is towards awakening, um, translated in, uh, from Pali Nibbana as awakening, enlightenment, freedom, you know, whatever. There's so many different contexts, so many different ways to think of it. Maranasati is also a practicing practicing for waking up, for more freedom, for more ease in our lives, not just in the cushion, but in just in the way that I that we live our lives. Nothing phases us anymore. Nothing contracts us anymore. This the sense, the feeling of us, the, the thought of us not being here anymore doesn't phase us. It doesn't con- create a contraction, and in fact, it can lead to more awakening, more freedom in life through the practice of letting go, because. Uh, Maranasati is a practicing of letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. So letting go practice, it, it, it can lead to more ease and freedom in our wakefulness, in our daily not life, not just in the moment of death, which is another way actually this practice can be beneficial. Um, there are teachings, uh, there is in one sutta, um, teachings to Anattapindika, uh, was um, so Anattapindika was one of the supporters of the Buddha, and on his deathbed, he receives um, these teachings, these uh, um, uh, death practices on the deathbed about letting go, letting go, letting go. Very systematically, um, he is guided through letting go, letting go of this, letting go of that, letting go of sight, sound, consciousness, this, that, and and at some point. Actually, it's, it's um, in in this sutta. He's cry, he's crying, he's weeping, and I think it's Sariputta, if I remember correctly. Um, says, "Why are you weeping? Are you in pain?" Or he says, "No, I've never heard such beautiful teachings before, given to a lay person. Like this, is so beautiful, so inspiring. To let go, let go, let go. So these letting go practice in the moment of death." can be liberating just the ultimate letting go instead of dying with a sense of fear like ah, oh it's gonna happen next i don't want to go i don't want to leave it's like ah letting go letting go into peace into ease into happiness into joy into 
just jumping for joy, like, wow, this mystery, fascinating, wild, letting go into it. And the moment of death actually can be a moment of liberation into Nibbana, into freedom, both in this uh, tradition and also in other traditions too. It's, it's considered, um, especially in the Tibetan tradition, it's considered a significant moment of letting go. Mm. So you can think of both the death contemplation practice as, just, as not just practice for daily life, waking up to your life to live it really fully with purpose, with alignment to, our, to your values, with, with gratitude, with, with freshness, with intensity, with uh, presence, with a lot more presence, being available for people that you love to hold their suffering and their passing, their death with more ease because you're not disturbed by your own. So not only so many benefits in the way you actually show up in the world, uh, but also for the moment of death that you die without fear, both for your own sake so that you get to enjoy the process, uh, this mystery that nobody has come back to really tell us what happens exactly. Um, and, uh, and also for the sake of your loved ones. So in that moment, they can hold your hand and you can hold their hand and there's a sense of peace. And, and as I say that, I'm reminded again, my, my mom's passing, there was this feeling of peace and grace and everyone who came into the apartment at the threshold, all the, the, the hospice nurses and, and staff, there was just a sense of peace and ease in the room that was co-created from her sense of peace and ease and not being afraid and and also me being a supporter on her journey, creating a sense of peace, like okayness. It's, it's not a mistake that she's dying. It's supposed, this is what's supposed to happen right now. It's part of the, the natural, lawful unfolding of things. So I think that's, uh, yeah, those are some benefits, I would say, of this um, uh, unusual, perhaps unusual, or radical, I think in, in our society might be considered a radical yes. practice. Yes. Did we think we hit all the nine? I think we did. Okay. Good, good enough. All right. Um, last question for me. Please. This is a big one. Okay. But I'm, I'm wondering whether we should do it, but let's do it. You brought it up before, past lives practice? <laughs> You're a scientist. Oh my God. Oh, I love it. I love it. I just, okay, sure. All right. Let's, let's go there. Why not? Let's go there. So, um, so I have to give a little preamble about this. So this is, um, so having practiced with Park Sayada, so, and, and, and to say also I practiced with him twice. So, um, sat three month retreat, uh, twice with him. So to practice with him a total of six months. Um, he teaches uh, Abhidhamma, translated to be the higher teachings, as well as which are written in the Visuddhimagga. And in the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, Buddha Gosa, uh, that we mentioned earlier. So um, after the mind gets very malleable, there are different practices to be done. So um, before actually even getting into Vipassana, which is seeing the three characteristics of impermanence, um, not self, 
and and unsatisfactoriness of all phenomena. So in the middle part, so after jhanas, before vipassana, what he does, the part of he's um, in in this Visuddhi Maga style practice, um, basically with with mind being so uh, concentrated uh, from the jhanas, the mind is being prepared. Where in the words of Paxida, we're collecting requisites. We're collecting. We're seeing all all the different natures of realities so that in the next phase we see the three characteristics of them. So basically we're collecting we're collecting everything that's possible in the field of experience through in all the experience of hearing and seeing and tasting and touching and and um and thinking both in this dimension and potentially what has come before and what might come after. So that when we're going to see the uh, three characteristics, the, the impermanence, the not-self, and unsatisfactoriness of everything, we're going to see it for everything. Does that give a sense? So so that there's nothing left in the sphere of experience. It's like, oh yeah, myself is, self is there, hidden there. You just like... So that phase is actually even more rigorous, is the most rigorous part of the practice, I would say. Seeing so, so part of that practice, there are instructions specifically given to the meditator when they get to later part of that practice to, um, to go back moment by moment by moment, mind moment by mind moment, and, and, and to say when the mind is so... I don't use the word concentrate, and so unified. And just the way of seeing and the kind of access to way of seeing things is so differently. And the way of seeing time and space, it's it gets very interesting in, in ways that is not quite accessible to normal uh, normal state of consciousness. I, I remember there were instructions that were written, for example, the, the, the practicing with him was 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 get like getting another PhD seriously. The, the, the instructions were written pages and pages and pages and pages. So I would read them, practice them. I would read some more. I would practice them. I would like, and, and I was on a tight deadline. Every 24 hours, there was an intense, <laughs> intense practice. And sometimes I would read the instructions. They would make no sense to me. But then the instruction was to get into the fourth jhana. And then you're supposed to come out of the fourth jhana and then do the practice and then turn your mind to these practices because then the mind is really sharp. Um, so I would read them, not understand them, like, okay, whatever. I would, you know, the mind would, would, would get into fourth jhana and then come out and then I would read them again, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, of course. And then I would practice them, like, oh, yeah, this, there, here, okay, fine. Seeing reality in a very different way that was not accessible before. So all of this to, to build up to... So one of the practices was to go to go back moment by moment by moment to the moment of birth and to the moments before that. So, and um, I did all of these practices Wait, with the you very remember everything that happened in your life to, up until the moment of birth. There, there are ways to do that. It's 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 very interesting. Yeah. So so. You just but remember, so, like, what you had for breakfast on your seventh birthday? Uh, and not like exactly. Not not. Ex- it doesn't exactly work that way. But but to say, um, the the access to memories becomes a lot more sharper than otherwise available in a non concentrated mind. So, as a scientist, you know, 
and also as a devoted practitioner to Park Sayada. I mean, I, I, I love this man. I'm not devotional. Being a nerd and being a scientist, devotion is not has never been big for me, but it's very something very special about this teacher. Really, really special. My other uh, mentor, teacher, friend, Guy Armstrong, whom you met yesterday, he says that... Yes, he, um, we recorded an episode with Guy yesterday. Right. Yes. Um, I love him saying that of all the meditation masters that Guy has met, Paul Oksayado has been the most Buddha-like, hmm. uh, with a sense of metta and love and just the specialness. There's something special about this being. Hmm. Um, so... You would tell me to do this, okay? I would, I would do my best to see how I could accommodate, and with a don't know mind. So, what I'm sharing with you about the quote unquote past lives practice, I still hold as a don't know mind. I'm not saying that it happened. I'm not saying that it didn't happen. I don't know, and in so many ways, I don't care. But what really came out of the practice, that's what I care about, and that's what I like to share with you. Okay. And the and so what. What came up was experiencing firsthand, whether true or false, again, I don't care, don't know mine, but the sense of experiencing life firsthand as different beings, as different human beings who lived and died and had hopes and sorrows and feeling their pain firsthand as my own, feeling their joys firsthand as my own, again and again and again, and seeing the comings and goings of this life, the comings and goings again and again and again, the tedium of many lives, this human life, again and again and again. And... The effect of the practice was feeling lack of separation from others. I could have been born as you, Dan. You could have been born as me. It is, it's so random in so many ways. We don't choose our parents. We don't choose our genes. We, we're still figuring out who we are, who this self is that's making all these decisions and has these predilections and fears and loves and sorrows, etc. It's, it's the sense of separation and feeling a sense of compassion, a sense of lack of separation for me. Just, it's completely changed through that practice. So as a scientist, I don't care whether I've lived before, whether I've not lived before. That's not the point of the practice, really. And who I was this, I was that, I was a queen, I was a this, I was a pauper. Who cares? It's, it's really what the practice produces in this life, in the way that we show up and in the way that we relate to others. You've been very patient with all of my questions. Uh, it's been, been really fascinating to sit with you. Um, two little questions before I go. Well, maybe not. But one is, is there something that I should have asked but didn't? Or do you feel like we, we got through everything you had on your mind to say today? Oh, I'll say one, I'll say one more thing, actually. Um, the beginning question, like where... You asked about my background and you know being a computer scientist and a nerd. I would say I would say one more thing. I never intended or wanted to be a Buddhist teacher. 
it's, it's I think that's one thing I share because it's in, in the narrative it's come up. So as I was um, sitting with my teacher, Pak Sayada, uh, both times, um, I would go to the practice meetings with him and, and he would point his finger to me, you must teach, you must teach Dhamma, you must teach Dhamma at the university. The thought bubble was, what, me teaching Buddhism, teaching Dharma? Are you kidding me? No way, I'm a nerd. I, I teach computer science. So I would say, Bhante, dear sir, uh, venerable sir, uh, I teach computer science so, because it would be unkind or, or rude to say, hell no, I'm never going to teach. So, and he planted a seed uh, that just flowered and kept changing my life in in interesting ways. If people want to learn more about you, are there places on the internet they can go to read or hear more from you? Yeah, I do have a website, and it is Nikki Mergafori. Mergafori is hard to spell. We'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, NikkiMergafori.com. And I have um, I have lots of audio recordings of my past talks that have been recorded at Spirit Rock and IMC and other places and videos and and schedule of teachings and blah, blah, blah. What a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to meet you, Dan, and, and have this conversation with you. Really lovely. Thanks again to Nikki. Uh, just a quick item of business here for if you're really interested, which I suspect many of you are, in the issues she was discussing. If you want to hear more about the jhanas, episode number 10 of this show, we talked to Lee Brasington, where he talks a lot about the jhanas. And then if you are if you want to learn more about Pau Ox Sayadaw, uh, Nikki's teacher, there is a website that we've added to the show notes where you can learn more about him. All right, let's do uh, some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. My name is Spencer, and I have uh, two questions for you. First of all, thank you so much for your podcast. Uh, it makes me feel not crazy for liking meditation as much as I do. So my first question is, uh, I've been meditating for every day for like a month and a half, and I really like it. I think I might, when thinking about starting with a teacher, and I have a, my eye on a couple of teachers in my area, I was wondering, is there like a minimum effective dosage for sitting with someone like once a week or, or once every other week? And then my second question is, I was also thinking about going on some type of a retreat and... I was worried because from time to time I have low back pain associated with um, sitting without support. So I was wondering, have you seen um, any accommodations made on retreats for people um, with low back pain? And if so, what do those look like? All right. Thanks very much. Bye. Awesome. Uh, so two questions there. Uh, one about the minimum effective dose with sitting with a teacher. I think that's highly individual. That's really... I think something you're going to have to feel out for yourself. I do um, work with a teacher myself, Joseph Goldstein, who's been on the show. I try to go on retreat with him once a year. We see each other a couple times during the year, but it's sort of episodic. We just did an event together in New York City, and we did an event uh, before that in April. And around both of those, um, we got a lot of FaceTime, and we also get on the phone every couple of months just to talk about my practice. Um, but that we've just kind of fallen into a rhythm there that – works for me. And if I think if I wanted more time with him, I could certainly ask. 
all of which to say, um, I think you should feel it out for yourself. I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any need for to be overly prescriptive there. Um, but good on you for for tackling this issue because I think I think having a teacher being in the room with somebody who's got a lot of cushion time can make a uh, can make a big difference. Second question about lower back pain. I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm a fellow sufferer, and yes, uh, the two places where I've sat meditation retreats, which are Insight Meditation Society, and then on the West Coast Spirit Rock, IMS is in Massachusetts. In fact, I just got back from IMS. I was um, I sat there for nine days. It, I was actually it kind of dropped in as a guest in the middle of they every year they do a three month retreat, which is I just blows my mind that there is such a thing that. Uh, like a hundred people, so, uh, uh, they break it up into two six-week uh, chunks. But some percentage of the uh, of people do both six weeks chunks, six-week chunks, and um, so they're there for three months. So they it blows my mind that they hand over their cell phones for that significant a period of time, and they're not you know just looking around the room. I didn't know any of them because nobody was talking, but. They look like just regular people. They didn't, um, you know, and they were all either some young people, there's some middle-aged people, there were some uh, older people. It was a real mix. Um, and just having come back from there, uh, I noticed there are people sitting in all sorts of positions. There are folks who are on the ground with a few cushions and sitting the, the way in which you would imagine people sit with, uh, you know, in the traditional posture of legs crossed, et cetera, et cetera. I saw, like me, many people sitting in chairs uh, and then there are a few people who are actually lying down during um, the meditation sessions. So, and then occasionally you'll see somebody just get up and stand, either because whatever physical pain they've uh, they've got is too intense, or because they're too tired. I'm just guessing. Those are the two reasons why I would stand. Um, so, you know, it just goes back to the fact that, as has been mentioned on the show before, there are really f- classically four positions in which the Buddha talked about uh, meditating, sitting standing, lying down, or walking. So, uh, yeah, and I, I um, there are all sorts of, there's all sorts of paraphernalia at the, you know, um, at the retreat centers I've been to where cushions and blankets and something called back jacks where you can give yourself support if you want to sit on the floor. So I wouldn't worry too much about it uh, if you're, if you've got lower back pain. It, uh, I think they got you covered. Uh, we're only doing one voicemail this week because there were two questions in there. But if you want to leave us a voicemail going forward, uh, there's a number in the show notes. Give us a call, and uh, either I will answer it or, even better, uh, we'll get an actual meditation teacher to answer the question. It's one of our favorite features of the show. Uh, before we go, I just want to thank everybody who's involved in uh, putting the show together. Uh, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, uh, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omohundro. Uh, we got a new person working the boards today. Her name is Dana. Uh, and thanks, as always, to our uh, podcast insiders whose um, input we get on a weekly basis and comes to me, and uh, it's extremely helpful, sometimes humbling, but that's good. And in closing, this is normally the part of the show where I say I'll see you next Wednesday with a new episode, but for once, actually, it's going to be see you next Thursday because Wednesday, next Wednesday, of course, is Christmas, so we're going to post our next episode the day after Christmas, and I should say it's the beginning of a ser- special series we're doing. We don't haven't done a lot of series on the show, but this is a – Special series we're doing around healthy habits because we're it's New Year's and everybody's making resolutions, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to tackle all sorts of habits from exercise to sleep to meditation to food and diet. In fact, actually, this woman we're bringing on is kind of like the anti-diet uh, maven and has really opened my eyes to the 
uh, lots of the uh, pathologies we have around eating. And uh, so we're going to start off with Kelly McGonigal, who's, who's going to talk about habit formation generally and also specifically around exercise. And, you know, I can't tell you how much value I've derived from conducting these interviews and hearing about habit formation through the lens of sort of mindfulness and sanity uh, while also wanting to, you know, be healthier. Um, it's made a big difference for me, so I'm excited to see how it lands with you guys. So I will see you next Thursday. Merry Christmas. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.